Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com, and I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories. I have a blog I think that you might enjoy checking out, and that can be found at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. And if you are enjoying my podcast and you want to reach out to me for any reason, you can send me an email at uh, rich at cagerredux.com. It's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Today is March 16th, 2022, and I'm going to do a dive into the state of amateurism as it exists in March of 2022. And I've talked quite a bit about these big picture issues and how they fit into the work of voluntary regulators in college sports. That's the NCAA, but primarily now the Power Five through this constitutional makeover and takeover by Power Five interests and how this transformation committee and importantly, Greg Sankey and the movers and shakers at the Power Five level see the state of amateurism and the future of amateurism, I think is going to be central to what this Division One makeover actually looks like. And then how the Power Five under the NCAA umbrella externalized their messaging to the regulatory forces that are having an increasingly important voice in what college sports may look like going forward. And this is such a big topic because it really requires a backward look to the future of amateurism. But I've done a lot of legwork on that. And in my pay for play series, I talked about amateurism. And then before the Austin oral argument in episode number 10 titled Amateurism, the NCAA's Great Lie, I talked about the NCAA as propagandist and how the principle of amateurism had been whittled away at the doctrinal level in these antitrust suits filed by athletes challenging NCAA compensation limits. And when I have talked about, quote-unquote, amateurism, I really express that in terms of compensation limits. That's what this comes down to, and that's the appropriate language in the context of anti-competitive behavior that amateurism has come to really disguise. And remember, Walter Byers, in his 1995 book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, Exploiting uh, College Athletes, had a, a quote, and it, this was really the money quote from that book, and it has been used in, in literature and in advocacy campaigns, athletes' rights advocacy campaigns. But Byers said in 1995, and remember, Byers was the longest-serving NCAA president. He was the first NCAA CEO. He was hired in 1951 and served until 1987. And the basic business model of big-time college sports is really built in Walter Byers' image and how he saw the business, how he saw the regulatory model, and how they purposefully crafted false values to disguise the rapacious greed at the financial level, the business level, that is really the essence of big-time college sports. And when uh, Byers talked about amateurism, he said this, amateurism is nothing more than camouflage for monopoly 
practice. He just nails it right there. And of course, Byers also, along with NCAA lawyers in the 1950s, invented out of whole cloth this concept of the student-athlete to beat back potential workers' compensation liability. And the reason that phrase was so important and has been propagandized into an unchallengeable virtue is that in order to qualify for workers' compensation benefits, you first have to establish that you're an employee. And the primary purpose of the student-athlete propaganda was to create in the minds of external decision makers like workers' compensation boards that the primary uh, or sole relationship between the athletes and the university beneficiaries was that of student, not of employee. So it really drew a a hard line in the sand on this employee-no-employee issue. We're going to talk about that as well. And what I think is so important about the way that Walter Byers described amateurism as nothing more than camouflage for monopoly practice is that amateurism is not a moral principle, but it has financial value. It's It's a commodity, and it's built on a pack of lies. And the NCAA has sold that lie to the highest bidder and has made billions and billions and billions of dollars. And the NCAA and and later the Power Five spared no cost in defending that lie through decades of brutal litigation against athletes who dared call that fraud out. And I think that's one of the primary benefits of all this antitrust litigation is that even though I'm not sure the athletes as a practical matter are in much better shape in terms of the package of benefits that they get and the quote-unquote compensation that they get for their very valuable services here. And I'm talking about the high-value revenue-producing athletes here. But I think at least at the symbolic level and as a foundation moving forward in, in the athletes' rights movement, the dismantling of the amateurism fraud through now 16 years of uh, federal litigation has important value. And I think the language is changing. And the NCAA has changed its language. And I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But really, when you're looking at the NCAA's false values, they are acting primarily as propagandists. And these false values change. They have no workable definition. That was one of the things that in this uh, Austin case, really, and in O'Bannon as well, that Judge Claudia Wilkin, the district court judge who heard both of these cases, she talked about in some detail. She said, look, I've been taking in evidence on this justification of amateurism to prop up the NCAA's exploitative business model, but I have yet to hear an intelligent, coherent, defensible definition of amateurism. And the reason that there isn't one is that it is almost by its very nature, impossible to define. It has no fixed permanent meaning. I want to t- talk a little bit about the, the differences between the old principle 2.9, the principle of amateurism that was in the old NCAA constitution and, and has been the most litigated language in the entire NCAA Division I manual, the Constitution, or any of its bylaws. With this new makeover in the new Constitution, and what do they call that? The collegiate student-athlete model. They've just changed the name. They've just put a new label on it. And that's what propagandists do. And when one dishonest propaganda technique fails, they just substitute it with another and march forward trying to achieve the same cynical interests, whatever they may be, as they pursued with the old label. 
And I want to go back to some of my earlier episodes about why I chose the name Big Amateurism for this podcast, the Big Amateurism Monologues. And the reason for that is when you do an honest and thorough analysis of the NCAA's business model, really going back to the television era in the 1950s, and then you compare it to the tactics and the strategies that the other bigs have used in modern American history, referring specifically to big tobacco and big pharma. Those three industries have used virtually identical tactics to gaslight the American public into buying into fraudulent concepts and values. And they've been enormously successful because they've had very powerful people in the United States in Congress, in courts, in the media, to do their bidding to support these fraudulent narratives. And I'm going to do a separate episode on that analogy at some point, and I may do that sooner rather than later, because I think it's really important to understand that's how this business of big amateurism operates. And they are just going to the dirtiest playbooks in corporate American History. As I've mentioned in prior episodes, I I grew up in Durham, North Carolina, which is ground zero for big tobacco. American Tobacco Company was once one of the largest cigarette manufacturers in the United States, and it was broken up through antitrust legislation in the Sherman Act in the early part of the 20th century. And so I I had a front row seat to the power of big tobacco and its messaging at the values level and the impact that had at the community level and the individual level. And I watched my father die from an addiction to tobacco. He died of congestive heart failure at the age of 57. And he was a a two-pack-a-day smoker. And he bought into some of these false ideals that the big tobacco industry peddled when they were trying to make a death product look like a symbol of American virtue and freedom and independence. And their marketing was geared towards that. And when I do my compare and contrast of the bigs, I'm going to talk about that smoking analogy in a little more detail because it was really interesting to me growing up in the in the belly of the beast and big tobacco to see how in that community where tobacco had such a powerful stranglehold, not just on the culture and the climate, but on the economy of Durham and of a lot of North Carolina, how difficult it was to fight against the narratives that big tobacco propagated as the public health issues started to become undeniable and irrefutable. That smoking actually was bad for you. It didn't have any salutary health effects. That you don't have a right rooted in American freedoms to smoke in a restaurant or on an airplane or in an enclosed space to blow it into innocent victims' faces and lungs. That's not an American right. But the way that the, the industry fought against that and these stages that we went through in trying to come to terms with the reality of the fraud that that industry was putting out took decades. And it was not an easy transition. And I'm going to ask the moral equivalence police to take the day off here you know, when, I, when I talk about these things. Because, yeah, is amateurism killing anybody? Well, no, but that industry uses the same tactics of power and of manipulation and of dishonesty and distortion to create a false public reality. 
that a lot of people just buy into, smart people buy into the lies hook, line, and sinker. And when I look at the magnitude of the lies, that's really how, how I think about this analogy. The magnitude of the amateurism lie, the way it has been propagandized, and the same is true with the student athlete, and the tools that the industry has used to propagate those lies is on the same scale as what you, you see in uh, big tobacco and also in big pharma. Like in big pharma, for example, with this OxyContin thing and, and Purdue Pharmaceuticals, and there's been a lot of talk about that. There have been some TV shows and some documentaries. It's trending, I, I guess. But in the medical community, 20, 25 years ago, when that anti-pain campaign kicked in and it became a national rallying cry that Americans have a constitutional right to be pain-free and the best way to do that is through this product that could relieve your pain but wasn't addictive. That was a massive lie. And, and the medical community, these some of the smartest minds in the country, bought into that lie and didn't do their work, really, to look at the evidence, to look at the data. And the, the results were just catastrophic, and we still haven't recovered from that. So our susceptibility to the messaging through these bigs, whether it's uh, big tobacco, big pharma, or big amateurism, is really a problem. And the only way to fight back is to change the narrative, to change public perception, to change how we feel about our relationship to these products. And that's what I said in my about page on my blog. The very first thing I wrote before I published a single blog post, why am I doing this? How do I see it? And my belief was that the power of big amateurism was so pervasive that there was no way that there's going to be a single lawsuit or a single bill in Congress or a single initiative by a state legislature that's going to change anything overnight. It's like the civil rights movement. You don't move from Jim Crow laws to true equality with the stroke of a pen and a piece of legislation. You do it through hearts and minds and persuasion. And we're still in that battle in big time college sports because the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are appealing to sensibilities that are so deeply rooted in the way that we see ourselves as a culture and the way that we express our sense of, of community socially that it's very difficult to fight back against. And that's why I have been very reluctant to buy into this narrative that the athletes are actually winning. I think that when you look very carefully at where things sit right now, truly sit in the, the state of the law, in the congressional debate, and at the voluntary regulatory level, and then through some of these agency actions to get athletes recognized as employees under federal law, I think you see that there is an enormous amount of uncertainty, and we still haven't crossed that fundamental threshold where people actually believe that athletes should be employees, that athletes should be compensated in a fair way according to their true value. I don't think we're there yet normatively. And I think that the athletes' rights movement, and I've talked about this in some of my discussions around the Austin case and my episode eight on, on judicial fealty to, to amateurism and how important some of those dynamics are, that, and that even in this progressive antitrust litigation out in the Ninth Circuit, you have a substantial deference 
to the NCAA's conceptualization of its business model and the values it has propagandized to defend that business model, and namely amateurism. I'm going to talk about this as we talk about how things are transitioning through the post-Austin world, the post-nil world, the post-transfer market world, and then with some of these other regulatory threats. And what I'm going to do in this episode is use Brett Kavanaugh's concurring opinion as the template for, for setting the table on these issues and discussing where I think amateurism sits right now. And the reason I want to use Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion, it really two reasons. One, it's gotten so much attention. And I think that it has been overstated in some ways. And the other reason is that really when you look at it structurally, he hits on really the, the important points about the history of amateurism, its improper use, the absurdity, the logical absurdity of using amateurism to justify compensation limits because you believe that consumers have a preference for watching performers who don't get paid. And that's really the, the essence of the NCAA's argument in Austin as in O'Bannon and, and White. That may change going forward. We're going to talk about that too, how the NCAA and Power Five now have the opportunity to sort of shift their justifications and try to focus on some things that haven't really been front and center in these antitrust cases that might be more defensible under antitrust laws. And we'll, we'll get to that. But I want to just start with, with this opinion and look at how Kavanaugh talks about the issues and how he frames the issues. And, and as with Neil Gorsuch's main opinion that, that I've talked so much about, and in that little series I did at the end of 2021, the top 10 of 2021, number two on the list was this Austin decision. And I talked in some detail about the importance of that case at the symbolic level and the techniques that Justice Gorsuch used to make some really important points with a, a very small chisel rather than a sledgehammer. And a lot of people perceive Kavanaugh's concurring opinion as more of a sledgehammer, right? I guess it is comparatively, but it also has some very subtle features that are really important that haven't gotten much attention. And this also speaks to the way that the media splashes headlines. I talked about that in my last episode, and there was some really interesting pushback uh, on this concurring opinion. And there were some people, and there were a couple of law professors who are in the sports commentariat who apparently didn't take this concurring opinion very well because it wasn't aligned with how they saw the institutional interest. That was a very interesting as well. I might, I might get to that at some point. But let me just start. And I'm just going to go paragraph by paragraph, page by page, and then address the issues as they come up. It's not very long. It's about five pages. But, but it covers a lot of territory in those five pages. So, just as Kavanaugh begins, the NCAA has long restricted the compensation and benefits that student-athletes may receive. And with surprising success, the NCAA has long shielded its compensation rules from ordinary antitrust scrutiny. Today, however, the court holds that the NCAA has violated the antitrust laws. The court's decision marks an important and overdue course correction, and I join the court's excellent opinion in full. So right off the bat, there are a couple of really important themes there that may not be apparent to a casual read of that paragraph. And when Justice Kavanaugh says, with surprising success, he's talking about this mileage that the NCAA and, and later the Power Five have gotten from this offhand language in the Board of Regents decision, that seminal Supreme Court case in 1984, that really didn't involve amateurism. That was a fight between the big-time powerful football interests and the NCAA, and the NCAA 
had an absolute ironclad monopoly over televised football at that time. And these powerful football interests, led by the Southern interests, what are now the SEC, the, the Big 12, the, and the ACC, they sued the NCAA under antitrust laws and said, you have a monopoly over the televised football market, and it's uh, a violation of antitrust laws. And we want those contracts stricken down. It had very little to do with amateurism. Amateurism wasn't even argued as a pro-competitive justification. It was a business-to-business -business dispute. But the court in that case made some offhand comments about the revered tradition of amateurism and that the NCAA needs ample latitude to regulate, to protect that interest, and that amateurism means in its essence that athletes are not paid, that they can't be paid. The NCAA took that language, which wasn't necessary to the court's decision in Board of Regents, which is why it's called dicta, meaning it really is has no legal precedent, has no legal meaning. Those were just offhand musings by the court and the NCAA for 40 years after that, nearly 40 years after that, has gotten really an absolute pass under antitrust laws or any challenges to its regulatory authority because it has argued that Board of Regents basically blessed the NCAA as the sole regulator in college sports and that because they were protecting the sacred principle of amateurism, that they were above the law literally above the law. And when Justice Kavanaugh says with surprising success, he's talking about all of these cases that have challenged the NCAA's regulatory authority in whatever context. And more recently in the context of athletes challenging the NCAA's compensation limits, that those challenges were turned away, routinely turned away or substantially influenced by this offhand language. And as I said in that episode on the Austin decision in late December of 2021, one of the most important practical outcomes of the Austin decision is that that unwarranted deference to this ridiculous conceptualization of the business model is over. The Board of Regents dicta has been given a proper burial. And as a result, I think for all intents and purposes, so did the NCAA's propagandized formulation of amateurism and its use of amateurism. It died with it. And when Justice Kavanaugh says that this decision, the Austin decision, represents an important and overdue course correction, he's saying that, that we're just going to end the NCAA's uh, trump card. Their, their amateurism-based trump card is, has been taken out of the deck. They can't play it anymore. And to illustrate the importance of that single component of the Austin ruling, I want to talk about the difference between the way that the NCAA talked about and defined amateurism in its governing documents before Austin versus what we have with this new constitution that was ratified on January 20th of 20. 22. So I just want to read the language of these two provisions and then some of the drafting history of this new constitution, because there were some interesting changes made from the first draft that was presented publicly on November 8th of 2021. Then there were changes made in, on December 6th of 2021. And then the final version was uh, put together on December 14th of 2021. And there were some important changes to the way that the NCAA articulated its its new formulation of athletes can't be paid. 
So again, they just change the language. That's what propagandists do. And when I go through these changes in the language of old principle 2.9, the principle of amateurism, and then this new student-athlete collegiate model or collegiate student-athlete model, whatever the hell they're calling it. I think that you see that this exposes the NCAA as nothing more than a propaganda machine. And they have changed the label, not the underlying purpose. And the underlying purpose is to use whatever rhetorical devices or labeling devices or propaganda that they need to create in order to preserve their exploitative business model. They will do anything in their power to keep the big-time college sports gravy train moving along in essentially the same structure as it existed before Austin. And I'll just say that if you want a more thorough discussion of the history of the way that the NCAA has articulated its principle of amateurism, you can go back to episode 10. I'm not going to go through the whole history. But this article 2.9, the principle of amateurism in the old NCAA constitution, has many of the components that, that were in the earliest formulation of amateurism in the early 20th century, uh, I think 1916 and 1922. It's evolved a little bit, but it's essentially in the same format. And it says, student athletes shall be amateurs in an intercollegiate sport and their participation should be motivated primarily by education and by the physical, mental, and social benefits to be derived. Student participation in intercollegiate athletics is an avocation, a hobby, in other words, and student athletes should be protected from exploitation by professional and commercial enterprises. That last part is just breathtaking because the NCAA is the chief exploiter and so are the Power Five. And, and that's gotten some attention in, in scholarly writings. And some sports journalists have, have picked up on that hypocrisy as well. But this language has been the bedrock of the NCAA business model. And it is this very language that it has relied upon in federal litigation and, and that dicta from Board of Regents to beat back any challenges to the NCAA's regulatory authority or its compensation limits. And when you look at the way that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries talked about college sports prior to Austin, it was loaded with amateurism, 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 amateurism. The NCAA subtly tried to change some of that messaging as this antitrust litigation in athlete suits really started to mature and they tried to move to the quote-unquote collegiate model as a substitute for amateurism. But I don't think the collegiate model ever really took hold in large part because of the decades-long propagandization of the amateurism concept and people just couldn't make that transition. But as a result of Austin and through this, the work of this Constitution Committee, the word amateurism has been stricken from the vocabulary of the NCAA and the Power Five. It has been taken out of the dictionary, as a totalitarian government might do. You could imagine the North Korean government just striking words from the language that don't comport with the interests of that totalitarian approach to, to governance. And that's essentially what the NCAA did here. So nowhere in, the, in this document, in any of the drafts, does the word amateur or any form of the word amateur appear. It just got disappeared. It was flushed down the memory hole. It is Orwellian memory hole. It no longer exists. In place of it, in the new constitution was paragraph B, 
under Article One, titled Principles. And I've talked quite a bit about the drafting of this new constitution. And I went back in, in my episodes on this constitutional makeover, and I went through a comparison, a kind of a line-by-line, line, provision-by-provision comparison of the old constitution and this quote-unquote new constitution. And it's largely a cut-and-paste job, and it very cleverly disguised the extent to which it pulled from the old constitution. But one of the most consequential changes was the elimination of Principle 2.9, the principle of amateurism. And the substitution of this provision, and this is, again, titled Section B of Article 1, Principles, it's called the Collegiate Student-Athlete Model. And I'm going to read you the final version, the version that was actually ratified on January 20th of 2022. And it says, student athletes may not be compensated by a member institution for participating in a sport, but may receive educational and other benefits in accordance with guidelines established by their NCAA division. That is the NCAA's new articulation of its principle of amateurism. And there's some really important things I want to point out about this. First of all, it moves away from defining the athlete interests by this label, this amateurism label, which is essentially a, a status that the athletes held in this business model. It was very broad and covered all NCAA compensation limits of any type. The way that this new principle of amateurism, if you will, is constructed is that it talks more specifically about the relationship between the athletes and the institutions. And it says athletes may not be compensated by a member institution for participating in a sport, but. And what that says to me is that the NCAA is acknowledging that there is a, a lot of wiggle room in how that relationship may be defined, but the central principle that they want to protect, and I think this was even true before Austin, that the most important component of the business model is that athletes can't be employees. And when you look at all of the ancillary categories of potential compensation and how those are limited, like name, image, and likeness, like education benefits, like recruiting inducements and extra benefits, and that, and that kind of ties into name, image, and likeness now in this new name, image, and likeness market. But when you look at all those subsets of compensation limits, there are different approaches to that. And I think that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have different views on that that aren't in line with this line-in-the-sand amateurism-based model, as was the case before Austin, or with this line-in-the-sand that is based on employee versus no employee. And as I said in my uh, earlier episodes, kind of talking about these labor issues at a br brush level, and then this Aspen Institute forum on athletes as university employees and my discussion of, of Bob Bowlesby's comments there, this athlete as employee issue is really the hill that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries will fight and die on. Because if that's breached, then at least in theory, the power balance between the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and the athletes changes fundamentally. And we're going to tease that out in more detail. And Kavanaugh talks a little bit about some of the pathways to a, a negotiated understanding of the relationship between the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and the athletes. But the line that's contained in this new constitution. The other thing that's interesting about this new constitution is that in the initial draft, the November 8th draft, there was some language 
that was deleted, that was taken out in the December drafts. And that language includes a specific reference to the commercialization of name, image, and likeness. So the initial formulation of the collegiate student-athlete model said athletes may not be compensated by a member institution for participating in a sport, but may receive educational and other benefits from the commercialization through use of their name, image, and likeness. That part about name, image, and likeness was taken out and it was replaced with this vague quote-unquote other benefits. So they talk about the education benefits, and then initially they talked about the name, image, and likeness benefits. And I think the reason that they included the name, image, and likeness language was to make it look like they were offering something that they didn't offer before under the old formulation of the principle of amateurism. And I I pointed this out in my episodes on the evolution of the drafting of this new constitution. Those two things aren't uh, the product of NCAA Power 5 magnanimity and good faith. Those are the product of external regulatory threats forcing the NCAA to offer those benefits. It was the state legislatures that pressed the name, image, and likeness issue. And then it was athletes filing federal antitrust suits that related to the education benefits that were afforded in Austin. But again, this is just the NCAA is propagandist trying to make it look like they're responsible for these things, and it just doesn't pass the blush test. But the question I, I have, and I don't think I really fully fleshed this out in my prior episodes, but you know, why was that language? removed. What is it about that language that caused some angst among the decision makers? And why was it taken out? And you can, again, you can rest assured that the NCAA's lawyers were uh, pouring through these drafts with a fine tooth comb, and they were going to try to have this language positioned in a way that was aligned with their lobbying interests and their litigation interests. And you have this house suit that I'm going to talk about in the next couple of episodes that is a name, image, and likeness suit. It's not a direct challenge to all these compensation limits. It is O'Bannon 2.0 and looking at the market changes that have occurred since O'Bannon. O'Bannon was a name, image, and likeness suit. And I think the reason this language was taken out is that it creates the impression and would ensconce into constitutional law a right to name, image, and likeness. And that is really inconsistent with what the NCAA and Power Five are doing behind the scenes in their lobbying campaign and how they're defending this house suit. So if you have that language in there, that's a problem on both counts, I think. So the safe thing to do is to take it out. You lose the benefit of making it look like you've moved into the 21st century by offering these benefits, which you never did voluntarily. You did with the state legislature boot on your throat. And and now the, the federal judiciary in this House case. But you lose that benefit. But what do you gain? You gain the ability to argue with a straight face to Congress behind the scenes that you want control of this name, image, and likeness market through preemption and the federalization of that market and having a federal corporation, as would be the case under the Wicker, the Moran, and the Shabbat bills, that would basically have the Power Five and the NCAA, to a lesser extent, in complete control of that federalized market. And any infractions and enforcement in that market. So this language had to go. And when I first read it, I thought, gosh, I don't know. And sure enough, it came out and it is not in the 
version that was ratified. So Kavanaugh goes on, and this is an important paragraph too, and I'm spending so much time on these early paragraphs because framing these issues really is really important. And the way that Kavanaugh set this up, he really, I think, touches on some of these bigger picture issues that are, that are necessary to understand what is likely to happen in, in the next phase of the relationship between the institutions and the athletes. But he says, but this case involves only a narrow subset of the NCAA's compensation rules, namely the rules restricting the education-related benefits that student-athletes may receive, such as post-eligibility scholarships, at graduate or vocational schools. The rest of the NCAA's compensation rules are not at issue here and therefore remain on the books. Those remaining compensation rules generally, I'm flipping a page here, restrict student athletes from receiving compensation or benefits from their colleges or for playing sports. And those rules have also historically restricted student athletes from receiving money from endorsement deals and the like. And then he says, I add this concurring opinion to underscore that the NCAA's remaining compensation rules also raise serious questions under the antitrust laws. And he talks about some points I'm going to get to in just a second. But what's important about that framing of his concurring opinion is that he puts education-related benefits in italics. So he wants to emphasize that this is a very narrow ruling, and Justice Gorsuch did that with the majority opinion. The majority was very careful to point out that they were limiting their ruling to the four corners of the injunction, the district court's injunction, and that their opinion should not be read as anything more than that. And, and that's a substantial limitation. And, and remember, Justice Kavanaugh is one justice. This is one opinion. It has no precedential value. And there is no way of knowing whether any of the other eight justices see things the way that Justice Kavanaugh sees them. And I'll talk a little bit more about that when even Justice Kavanaugh, in his concurring opinion, makes an important points about the limitations of having amateurism itself just declared a facial violation of antitrust laws and the entire amateurism-based compensation limit structure is just taken down. However, the NCAA articulates its its principle of athletes can't be paid, whether it's in, in the old principle 2.9 or the new uh, collegiate student-athlete model. So the other thing about this narrow subset comment is that when you look, and I mentioned this just a, a little bit earlier, but when you look at the challenges to the NCAA's regulatory authority and its rulemaking, its amateurism-based rulemaking, they have been in very specific circumstances that didn't go to just a complete takedown of amateurism itself or compensation limits themselves. So you had white, which was a cost of attendance lawsuit, very limited. Then that settled. Then you had O'Bannon, which was a name, image, and likeness suit, which offered a very limited remedy and in many ways was deferential to the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism. And then you had Austin, which originally was designed to take down amateurism itself, but then the athletes abandoned that claim in the Supreme Court appeal. And they were defending this injunction for a limited category of education benefits. And now we have name, image, and likeness revisited in this House case in, in California, but you don't have an active case 
in the federal courts that is now specifically positioned to take down amateurism itself. And one of the reasons that's so important, I think I'm going to talk about this more when I get into my discussion of the House case and what that really looks like, is that I think the O'Bannon decision, the Ninth Circuit opinion, not the district court opinion, but the Ninth Circuit opinion really deferred to the amateurism principle and brought it in what I believe is an improper way, not as a justification under the rule of reason analysis, but it's as this freestanding normative principle that kind of subsumed the antitrust analysis. But the way that the Ninth Circuit evaluated the case they drew this important distinction between education-related benefits, which they said were okay, and then non-education-related benefits, which they said were not okay because they would turn amateurism upside down. In my judgment, and I talked about this at length before the Austin case, and one of the problems with the way that the case was framed by the advocates and the athletes abandoning their claim for a full and free market for the value of the athlete services is that that O'Bannon distinction remained intact because the Austin remedy and the way that the advocates wound up framing that case fell clearly and safely within this education versus non-education related benefit dichotomy. And the education related benefits didn't pose any threat to the O'Bannon framework. And I have characterized that framework, the education versus non-education related benefits distinction, really as a form of qualified antitrust immunity to the extent that a litigant in the Ninth Circuit is seeking a full and open market for the value of the athlete's services. That would relate, obviously, to non-education-related benefits and would be impermissible under O'Bannon. That is still the state of the law in the Ninth Circuit right now, even with this house suit. And I'm going to talk more about how that fits in or may fit in to the house case when, when I get to it. But that's an important l limitation. So even though we're having this discussion in Austin and post-Austin about the possibility that athletes might have the opportunity to be compensated in an open and free market for the value of their services, there's no federal ruling on the books right now which really opens that avenue. And Justice Kavanaugh's musings here are made in that context. What I found so interesting about the decision in Austin is that nobody talked about O'Bannon. That O'Bannon II limitation, because it wasn't challenged by the athletes, it just got swept in to the Austin analysis. And that is one of the most important undiscussed elements of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision. And I think Kavanaugh was indirectly getting to that when he italicizes education benefits. And so Kavanaugh go, goes on to say that he's writing this concurring opinion to talk about the NCAA's remaining compensation rules. And he says three points warrant emphasis. And this first point is really to limit the interpretation of his concurring opinion. I think this kind of got lost in some of the hoopla over the more sensational language in this opinion. But he's really saying, look, you know, I'm doing this in a very limited context here because of the nature of the majority ruling. But he says, first, the court does not address the legality of the NCAA's remaining compensation rules. As the court says, the student athletes do not renew their across the board challenge to the NCAA's compensation restrictions. Accordingly, we do not pass on the rules that remain in place or the district court's judgment upholding them. Our review is confined to those restrictions now enjoined. And the, the purpose of that quote from the majority opinion and Kavanaugh's use of it in his concurring opinion is to say that 
this decision is not precedent for the proposition that amateurism itself is a violation of antitrust laws. They're very clear to make that distinction. Then Kavanaugh says, second, although the court does not weigh in on the ultimate legality of the NCAA's remaining compensation rules, the court's decision establishes how any such rules should be analyzed going forward. After today's decision, the NCAA's remaining compensation rules should receive ordinary rule of reason scrutiny under the antitrust laws. The court makes clear that the decades-old stray comments, this dicta, about college sports and amateurism made in Board of Regents have no bearing on whether the NCAA's current compensation rules are lawful, and that's important, as I discussed uh, earlier. And the court stresses that the NCAA is not otherwise entitled to an exemption from the antitrust laws. As a result, Absent legislation or a negotiated agreement between the NCAA and the student-athletes, the NCAA's remaining compensation rules would be subject to ordinary rule of reason scrutiny. So what Kavanaugh wants to make clear here is that the practical impact of this case, even though it doesn't take down amateurism, it does have some practical value. And I've talked about this at length in my analysis of the Austin decision, and that is that this magic addicta from Board of Regents is dead. It's been given a proper burial, and we can just take that garbage out of the discussion of the NCAA's regulatory authority and the validity of its compensation limits. And and he ties that in to what was the true purpose of the NCAA's appeal in the first place. Remember, the NCAA appealed this case to the Ninth Circuit and to the United States Supreme Court. The athletes did not. And Justice Gorsuch, in his main opinion, he makes that point, I think, pretty clearly. He tries to do it, again, with a, with a chisel, not a sledgehammer. But he's essentially saying, what the hell were you doing here, NCAA? Why did you appeal this case? The ruling below, the injunction isn't that... Uh, isn't a problem for you. It's very narrow. It's not going to break the bank and is consistent with your stated purpose, and that is education, you know, in, in claiming your nonprofit status. So why did you appeal? The reason they appealed, and they were dishonest about this, they outright lied about this, and they misled federal courts, and they misled Congress about this. Their true purpose was to obtain absolute and unchallengeable antitrust immunity for its regulatory model and its compensation limits, its amateurism-based compensation limits. They outright denied that that's what they were doing, but the U.S. Supreme Court analyzed it on those terms because they knew that's precisely why the NCAA filed the appeal. And, they, and Kavanaugh said what uh, Gorsuch said in his opinion is you can't have it. If you want antitrust immunity, you have to get it through Congress. It's not coming from the United States Supreme Court. You're not getting a judicially created antitrust immunity. And remember, the, the antitrust immunity that the NCAA was trying to get through Congress was presented as being limited to name, image, and likeness. And that wasn't true either. Because the antitrust provisions in these NCAA-friendly Republican-sponsored bills were not limited to name, image, and likeness. But that was their propaganda in Congress. But in the Austin case, that wasn't a nil case. It wasn't a name, image, and likeness case. The original claims by these athletes was that all of the compensation limits in any category, and including this broad amateurism-based overall compensation limit that athletes simply can't be paid. But in the Austin case, the NCAA and the Power Five were asking for an absolute antitrust immunity. 
and it was much broader on its face than what the NCAA Power Five claimed they were asking for in Congress. So they were going for the whole enchilada here, and it was a massive, massive ask. And where were all of our sage journalists, the sports journalists or mainstream journalists and all of our go-to legal experts on that? You didn't hear boo from them about what was really going on in this Austin case. Those are the people who are supposed to know. And it ties back into my theme on the prior episode that all these people in one way or another wind up landing largely in support of the institutional interest. They don't call the NCAA and the Power Five out on all of their dishonest narratives. And this was a patently dishonest narrative that the NCAA and Power Five were not seeking antitrust immunity in the Austin case. And I think the way that Justice Kavanaugh talks about that in this, this second thing that he thinks is important in analyzing any, any future cases challenging NCAA compensation limits, and that is that this ask, this massive, unprecedented ask for outright antitrust immunity was so audacious that merely saying, no, of course not. You can't be immune from antitrust laws. Who the hell do you think you are? Simply saying that out loud looks like this massive victory for athletes' rights. I think it speaks more to the audacity and the dishonesty and the arrogance of the NCAA's ask than it does from uh, recognizing that the NCAA should be uh, held to the same standards as any other market participant in the United States of America under free competition laws. That's not a big deal. It shouldn't be a big deal. But it was a big deal because the NCAA came in and they wanted to turn antitrust law upside down and inside out. And they believed they had a pretty good chance of getting that result, I believe. And they still believe, I think, that they have somewhat of a chance of getting it from Congress. And then Kevin includes a third thing. And this gets closer to, I think, the, the fear that he inspired with this concurring opinion. And again, the NCAA and Power Five are acting as if the United States Supreme Court had just taken down amateurism altogether. And there's, again, there's nothing in the opinion that supports that. There's nothing even in what's perceived to be this sort of death shot concurring opinion that suggests that. Kavanaugh is very clear to talk about the limitations. He goes on, though. He says, third, there are serious questions whether the NCAA's remaining compensation limits can pass muster under ordinary rule of reason scrutiny. Under the rule of reason, the NCAA must supply a legally valid pro-competitive justification for its remaining compensation limits. As I see it, however, the NCAA may lack such a, a justification. And he says the NCAA concedes its compensation rules set the price of student-athlete labor at a below-market rate, and the NCAA recognizes that student-athletes currently have no meaningful ability to negotiate with the NCAA over the compensation rules. And uh, Kavanaugh goes on to say, the NCAA nevertheless asserts that its compensation rules are pro-competitive because those rules help define the product of college sports. Specifically, the NCAA says that colleges may decline to pay student-athletes because the defining feature of college sports, according to the NCAA, is that the student-athletes are not paid. And then he goes into a discussion of how absurd that is, how circular it is, and that the defining nature of the product and the pro-competitive justification are that uh, consumers, and this runs through a consumer-facing analysis, as I've discussed in, in prior episodes, not through a labor-facing analysis, but looking at it in, through the lens of consumers, that consumers have a preference or want to exercise consumer choice to watch college sports because the athletes don't get paid. 
And that's such a ridiculous argument on its face. Again, Kavanaugh's takedown of this, and the majority takes this down too. The real import of this takedown on that absurdity is that the NCAA and Power Five got away with it for almost 40 years post-board of regents. It's ridiculous on its face. But again, it speaks to the power of the NCAA as propagandist. So Kavanaugh goes on talking about how how ridiculous it is and, and some of his analogies got a lot of press coverage. And he says, and if that asserted justification is unavailing, it is not clear how the NCAA can legally defend its remaining compensation rules. And then he gets into a discussion about all the things that would have to be addressed in the event that amateurism were just taken down or declared a facial violation or NCAA compensation limits were declared facial violation of antitrust laws. And then the value of the athlete services would be left to the free market. And I'm going to talk about those in just a second. But this last sentence of that discussion where he says that asserted justification, this consumer preference for amateurism is unavailing if in a future case, that doesn't pass muster as a pro-competitive justification. It's not clear how the NCAA can legally defend its remaining compensation rules. On that point, I want to make clear here what Kavanaugh is saying. He's not saying that there couldn't be a justification. He's saying that this justification, that consumers have a preference for amateurism, is ridiculous. And if if that's what you're going to use going forward, I don't see you winning in in future challenges under antitrust laws. And I think he's right about that. And, And that's one of the benefits of this decision is that they call out the ridiculousness of that argument. But that doesn't mean, and I'm going to talk about this in more detail when we get to this House case, which again is a name, image, and likeness case. It's not specifically geared to taking down all amateurism-based rules and creating an open and free market for the value of the athlete's services. But the way that those issues have been framed and some of the uncertainty now that exists in the legal framework going forward, I think you could see the NCAA coming up with an entirely new approach to its pro-competitive justifications. And I think that if the NCAA kind of moves away from this consumer preference argument, which is a loser, and they instead land more squarely and specifically on limits that try to protect the quote-unquote recruiting environment and focus on improper inducements, I think that may be a different way to articulate a pro-competitive justification that may be more defensible. And you have to remember that in this discussion over name, image, and likeness, even some of the people, the most staunch athlete rights advocates like Richard Blumenthal, like Cory Booker, even Ramogi Huma in his testimony, and he testified three or four times across these seven hearings, he was on record saying that he does not believe that name, image, and likeness should be used as a recruiting inducement. And there seems to be some broad agreement, at least at the values level, that that's an encroachment that everybody agrees is bad. And if the NCAA lands with that, and this new nil market, I think, has evolved into that, or at least people perceive that it has in the absence of a meaningful market data and reliable market data. But the sense is that this unregulated nil marketplace, this less regulated nil marketplace, an unenforced nil marketplace has resulted in relationships that amount to inducements to high school students to come to a particular school. That may have a different resonance. And I'm not 100% sure, but I, I think that that take on uh, pro-competitive justifications hasn't really been the centerpiece in, in these antitrust cases filed by athletes, going back to 
white. So again, I'll try to flesh that out when I look more at this house case. And there's some interesting dynamics there because when that case was first filed in June of 2020 on the backside of the Ninth Circuit's decision in Austin where Judge Mylon Smith issued a concurring opinion basically saying that we may have screwed up the market analysis and this shouldn't be based on how consumers view amateurism, but what the relationship is between the laborers and, and the employers, essentially. You had this house suit based on name, image, and likeness out in California, and a lot's changed since that suit was filed in June of 2020. You had the Austin case, then you had Judge Wilkin issuing a ruling on a motion to dismiss in house that looked like it was going to be open to Judge Smith's kind of labor-facing market analysis. And then you had an amended complaint after July 1st, after the NCAA liberalized its uh, nil rules that kind of creates some interesting positioning issues for the litigants on, on both sides. I'm going to talk about all of that. There are a lot of unanswered questions here, but it's not outside the realm of possibility that in that litigation, the NCAA and Power Five could articulate a, a new pro-competitive justification that may be more persuasive than their ridiculous uh, consumers prefer athletes who don't get paid justification. Uh, and to close this out, I want, I want to talk a little bit about how Justice Kavanaugh talks about some of these other issues. And basically, I think the way he, he looks at the alternatives to the current business model, he's looking at two pathways. One is Congress, where there could be some federal legislation that solves some of these issues. The other is through collective bargaining. And after he talks about the ridiculousness of the NCAA's pro-competitive justification, and then talks about some of the problems with a full and free market for the value of the athlete's services. And he talks about comparative compensation. Would you do it by sport? What about Title IX? What are, are there going to be salary caps? I mean, there are all these issues out there that would need to be resolved. And then he says, of course, those difficult questions could be resolved in ways other than litigation. Legislation would be one option, or colleges and student athletes could potentially engage in collective bargaining or Paren, seek some other negotiated agreement, close paren, to provide student athletes a fairer share of the revenues that they generate for their colleges, akin to how professional football and basketball players have, have negotiated uh, league revenues. And he says, regardless of how these issues ultimately would be resolved, however, the NCAA's current compensation regime raises serious questions under the antitrust laws. Again, in the context of the proffered pro-competitive justification, which is this ridiculous notion that, that consumers prefer that athletes not be paid. But the way that that paren or, or some other negotiated agreement is important here. So I think Kavanaugh is looking at, at this going forward and saying, yeah, we have all these problems, but the way to resolve them is through negotiation. The only way that's going to take place either is through athletes having those rights under the NLRA through the these misclassification charges like Michael Shoes in, in, in the NLRB, or through some other device, something short of, of, of true collective bargaining that would bring these interests to the table and have a negotiated understanding of what the relationship is going to be. Because this ultimately comes down to what is the true relationship between the laborers and the beneficiaries of the labor. And also, as I identified in my very first episode and built this podcast around, who gets to decide. And with all the play in the joints in this moving definition of amateurism over the decades, really going back to the early 
20th century and then picking up steam in the television era in the 1950s. It's not necessarily about whether or how much athletes should be paid. I argue that the athletic scholarship is an outright form of pay for play. And then you have all these other categories of quote-unquote compensation, this nil compensation, education compensation, achievement compensations, both academic and athletic. You have all these exceptions. And amateurism has been however the NCAA has chosen to define it at a particular point in time. So the real question is who gets to decide? And we're in that battle right now. And what Kavanaugh is saying, and I think one of the important consequences of Austin, is that in looking at who gets to decide, there are all kinds of different ways this could play out. But the only intelligent way, I think, is that you have these parties sitting down at a table with equal bargaining power, talking honestly about their interests, and then coming to a negotiated understanding. And honestly, right now, I, I just don't think that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are capable of that. And that's true in large part because of not just their, their institutional arrogance and, and in some cases their individual arrogance, but that we have the same thinking, the same people who are making the decisions, who caused this mess in the first place. And they've been dragged kicking and screaming again and again to sensible, reasonable positions. But their default setting that is covered in all their power and all their relationships with the in-system power bases, Congress, legislatures, the sports media, the sports entertainment industrial complex, those power bases enable the continuation of this outdated and un-American way of thinking about the relationship between the uh, employers and, and the laborers. And they're in a bubble. And, and I, I think I probably ought to do an episode on some of the human nature dynamics here. And I got a little taste of that when I was in the bubble for that Duke-UNC game, you know, Coach K's last game, and Cameron. And you can lose your senses. You can just lose your way. You can just completely step into a world where the values that you brought into that world no longer exist. And I think that's true for a lot of these people who are in the bubble where they get, just get caught up in their self-interest and their multi-million dollar salaries and all the things that they think big-time college sports do at the institutional level. And when you're in that thinking, it's very, very difficult to step out of it. And I think it's human nature that when you got uh, your gravy train being threatened, you will do whatever it takes and engage in any justifications and rationalizations to preserve it that you need to. That's just the way things work in life and human nature. And we have to account for that. So anyway, so that's going to wrap up this episode. And then I think in my next episode, I want to talk a little bit more about this house case and I've gone back into the electronic vault to try to bring my thinking up to date. And there honestly hasn't been a lot that's happened substantively. We do have some new claims and some new thinking in this amended complaint that came out after Austin and after July 1st. I think the amended complaint came out on July 26th. And another important thing happened. Jeffrey Kessler joined the plaintiff's team. Steve Berman, who has been part of this litigation, I think he, he was in both O'Bannon and Austin. Now he's in-house and he was the mover and shaker in getting that house suit filed. He was driving the train there. And then Kessler came on board. I think it was at or about the time that that amended complaint was filed. So that was a good number of months ago. And there hasn't been a, a lot done. The, the court has set a, a essentially a schedule 
for the litigation. And when you look at it, it's projecting out into 2024. So it's, it's not clear that we're going to get a lot of direction, at least from this House case, in the short run. And I'm going to talk about that as well, the timing of all of these external pathways. But I think House has the potential to wrestle with some of the issues that are unknowable right now in the nil space. And they'll have the opportunity to look at the nil market, and they're going to have to, and both sides are going to be looking at, at the nil market through different lenses in the context of their interest in the litigation. And that could uh, produce some interesting results in, in discovery and, and expert testimony. So that, I think, is going to be interesting. But again, that's going to be uh, a bit down the road. So anyway, I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Thank you.